Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Here we want to be proactive and learn how to have optimal health. Optimal health is not measured by the lab values that your doctor gives you because those values are compared to a 95% of a generally sick population. We want to do better than that and be optimal. Uh, Chronic diseases are something that's uh, getting, you know, taking a lot of our medical system's attention. 58% of children have a chronic disease used to be 18%. The age of optimal health, as well as life expectancy, are decreasing. But all these diseases are multifactorial. I'm going to talk a tiny bit about Alzheimer's disease because our guest today has been studying it and has come up with some very interesting things. We all fear Alzheimer's disease and the disability that accompanies it. Ask anyone over 50 how they feel when they forget why they went into a room or why they can't find their keys. Dale Bredesen, previously interviewed on this show, identifies many contributing factors, and uh, he manages to reverse the cognitive symptoms by addressing some of the major contributing factors. I had published an article on autism, and to me, my conclusion was that autism is the final common pathway of everything that can go wrong. This is a peer-reviewed published article. So perhaps Alzheimer's and aging and many chronic diseases are the same. So we're all looking for ways to reduce our risk for chronic disease and the risk of Alzheimer's. Also, would like to know how we're doing on this scale. Is there any way to measure it? We'll have some of those answers today. Today, we have Dr. Goodnow. He is a Ph.D. neuroscientist, synthetic organic chemist, and biochemist. He's an expert on the biochemical mechanisms and the epidemiology of disease and death. His extension portfolio of inventions and patents includes diagnostic technologies, disease biomarkers, and disease therapeutics. He analyzed tens of thousands of blood samples from healthy and diseased persons of all ages from around the world, from which he has identified specific biochemical imbalances that occur prior to the onset of the disease. He's designed and developed natural human metabolic intermediates and supplemental protocols to correct these imbalances, prevent disease, and increase longevity and vitality. His book, Breaking Alzheimer's, describes his discovery that plasmalogen deficiency causes dementia and targeted plasmalogen supplements he designed to fix it. That's pretty exciting, folks. Um, So his uh, research into biochemical mechanisms of disease started in 1990, and he's been curious about that ever since. So welcome, Dr. Goodenauer. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, uh, what is the difference uh, from a deviation from health and a disease? That's probably the root issue we have when we're trying to study optimizing our health. And we, the ability to actually understand the, the progression from a deviation from health to a risk of an adverse health condition to the actual symptoms of a health condition, we 
people look at health and medicine, and for some reason they put blinders on and they, they, they don't think of our health the way they think about anything else in our life, like our car or our house. And we just don't walk down the street and get disease, right? It's not a, it's not a strike of lightning that causes us to have some symptomatic um, reduction, like our reduced cognitive ability or our mobility or our strength or anything like that that we, we observe as we get older. These things aren't mysterious. They don't come from, you know, reading astrological star charts. And so I think the problem we have is that the medical system has been designed, and not, not in a negative way, just from a practical way, of first looking at sick people. Someone actually has a disease. Someone is hurting. And the doctor's job is to find out, okay, what is wrong with this person? So it's not a question whether something is or is not wrong. Something is wrong, and it's a doctor's job to identify what it is and what can we quickly do about it, you know, how serious is, is it. And that is the acute care medicine model. So everything is designed around a disease. And then, then you want to say, okay, what could it cause, cause that disease? And we, and we don't really look much further beyond that. And if you take a common life circumstance, this is like, driving around with your car, waiting for a tire to go, to, to hit a, a, a nail and getting a flat tire and say, oh, I have a flat tire. I wonder what caused the flat tire. And then you say, oh, I have, a, I have a bald tire. I guess I better patch the tire. When in fact, you don't need to wait to get a flat tire to recognize that your tire is bald. Like you can recognize a bald tire long before you get a flat tire and you can change your tires. Your biochemistry and your health is the same way. And so when you start looking at, so a deviation from health is what the bald tire is, whereas a disease is the flat tire. And so all deviations, so all diseases ultimately come from a deviation from health. And that's the difference. So when you talk about optimizing health, it's not about fighting disease. And that's the, fighting disease is a, is a losing game. And this is the problem epidemiologically is that we have average lifespan has improved over the last century, but it, it's improved because we have reduced premature death. People don't die of acute illnesses anymore. But we have not altered our maximum lifespan. Where our, so our maximum lifespan is still exactly the same. And so the, removing a negative is not the same as adding a positive. So preventing death is not the same as living longer or living healthier. And so to understand how to live longer and healthier, we need to understand what health is and ignore what disease is because the goal here is to, the human body is designed to work. And we know how it's supposed to work. We have thousands and thousands of clinical trials out there, all of which have a control or a normal or healthy normal arm to it. And so we know how the human system is supposed to work from youth onward. And this is where this whole aging model, for me, is a bit of a pet peeve because aging is not really relevant. It's function. It doesn't matter how old you are. Certain things in your body are supposed to work. Whether you're 5 years old or whether you're 30 years old or whether you're 90 years old, your heart is supposed to work. Um, and that's the functionality of understanding optimized health. And so that's kind of where the difference between deviation from health and a disease is. So deviation from health increases 
creates a susceptibility for disease, which means um, you may not get a flat tire right away, but you're living on borrowed time. And that's, that's the difference. It seems to me the allopathic model is focused on disease management or sick care rather than looking underneath the hood to see where on the spectrum of any possible illnesses, because they all, I believe, are a continuum, diabetes, Correct. dementia, etc. And it just seems that uh, allopathic approaches are symptom addressing the symptoms and not looking at underneath what gives us optimal health, good functioning, and feeling good about our lives. Absolutely correct. You know, and, and it's, it's not hard to understand how we've come to this point. If anyone has looked at history, if everyone, anyone's, you know, visited the, the West Indies and the, the old Dutch colonies in, in the West Indies, and they'll see these streets where all these houses have these, the, the front facing of their house is just big enough for the door. And then the house goes to a huge house behind the door. And the reason was because the government taxed people based upon the linear square foot, linear footage of their front. So it didn't matter if you had a 10,000 foot house or if you had a 1,000 foot house, you got the same tax based upon how big the, how many feet on the street was. So what do people do? They build houses with very small front street-facing aspects of it. And so human behavior works that way. And in the medical community, it's still the same way. So if we're going to diagnose a disease and someone has a symptom, right, you have a headache, for example, okay, and we want to actually, how do I measure that I got better from a headache? Well, I take an aspirin or I take Tylenol, and the end result is whether or not people with Tylenol or without Tylenol have reduction in, in, in headaches. And then I can get a patent, I can develop a drug, and I've had this, this, this um, clearly definable, quantifiable effect. And I have a mechanism. I can, I can sell a product for it. And so it makes sense. So that's what people do. That's, and then the industry has continually done that. And since that's the model of the financial model is that then it's just logical that you would look for more and more symptoms that you can alleviate because symptoms can be proven in a clinical trial to be improved. And if you show that that's the model which we're going to say a treatment works or does not work, then you're going to find the simplest way to do that. And the drug industry does that very well. Unfortunately, the treating of the symptom is just basically taking a ball tire that's flat, putting a patch on it, and putting a bald tire back on the road again, which means that bald tire is likely to get another flat in a short period of time, which will need another patch. So if I'm in the business of making patches for flat tires, I like lots of bald tires on the road. I, I, I love to just put a bald tire back on the road because in a couple weeks later or a month later, they're going to come back with another flat, and I'm going to put another patch on it. And this is what happens with cancer and our, our diseases in the world today is that if you get diagnosed with colon cancer, for example, and you go in and you get the cancer removed and they put you back on the street again, you're still much, much higher of getting a recurrence of that cancer than someone who never, ever had cancer in the first place. And so the issue is that it's very, it's financially difficult um, for us to do preventative medicine, okay, because 
you have to fix a lot of bald tires to show a reduction in flat tires. Whereas if I'm in the business of just fixing flat tires, I just have to wait for the tires to get flat and fix them. And it's the same concept of driving your car. Like you don't say, oh, I'm going to drive my car till it stops. And then I'm going to say, well, what caused my car to stop? And you go and you look in the engine and say, oh, there's no oil. I guess that's what caused my car to stop. Well, no. We've learned long enough ago that we say, you know what, keep, keep oil in your car engine and it won't seize. I don't have to wait for it to seize to look in the, the crankcase for enough oil in it. And so the point, so we do this proper functional design work in every, every other aspect of our lives, okay? The way we manage our houses, the manage our cars, manage anything in our world, we have this concept of function. What is the functional use of this, this, this piece of equipment, right? So I can have a car that's in the 1910s or 1920s, and I can have it running perfectly today because it has functions. And you just need to make sure that those functions are operating properly. So the human body is the same way, but we just don't, we're not in the business of doing that. There's no financial incentive. There's no model for that. And so that's kind of where this whole advanced technology that people are, are looking into and saying, you know, I'm not satisfied with just waiting to get sick and having someone try to fix my sickness. I want to know in advance. I want to be proactive. I want to say, hey, this is not right. I don't have to wait for a disease. Like if, you, if your triglycerides are elevated, you don't have to wait for an outcome. It's not supposed to be there. Fix it. Okay? If your plasmalogens are low, which we talked about, or you have your, there's a bunch of biomarkers in our blood that are really important to understand how your body is functioning. You don't have to wait for a disease to fix them. And they're indicators of you have a deviation from health. Your body is not working properly. And then we can get more and more advanced. And then we can also deal with enhancement now and say, okay, I can, uh, you know, here is the general state of health, but there's people among us that are, that are above normal health, right? And the question is, is why are they so healthy? Why are they as robust as they are? And we can learn the same way we've learned from disease, what, why, what's, what's wrong in a person with disease, what caused that person to have a disease. That same type of logic can be applied to, why is this person so healthy? What, is it, what, what have they naturally got lucky on? And, can we, and it's not any one thing. It could be many things. But we can actually start learning from that. And so the deviation from health leads us to disease, right? And specific diseases are linked to specific deviations, right? A plasmalogen deficiency is linked to reduced cognition mortality. You know, you have um, elevated glucose, ele- you know, insulin um, insensitivity, that'll lead to complications of diabetes, which is, you know, cardiovascular disease, blindness, you know, diabetic neuropathies. So we know, we do know that there's certain deviations from health that are linked to, to certain outcomes. And they're usually linked to bigger outcomes, right? Diabetes is not linked to one single negative health outcome. It's linked to many health outcomes. And that's the other trick of, the, of this. When you start moving up the logical causation pathway, you start realizing that health is a singularity. Your health, my health, your children's health, your parents' health, health is the same for all of us. There's no, it's our, we have 
different diseases. We may have different genetic predispositions to diseases, but those may or may not occur. Um, and then they do occur, that's where we create this differentiation in our population. But that's, those are just possibilities, not certainties. So that's kind of where this, this whole... That's interesting. It sounds like our system is designed to give us lots of patches, uh, thanks to the pharmaceutical industry, etc. And I'm talking about optimal health and you know, deviation from that, or health deviation, it is nebulous to define, but there are biomarkers that can help. And like in diabetes, for example, I mean, obviously uh, eating high carbs is a contributor, but so are toxins and many other things. So you were you, you, uh, were interested in autism. I wrote, uh, uh, wrote part of an article on biomarkers for autism, and I wrote all the functional medicine parts. And back in 2013, I was very excited to put the gut in an article because it just wasn't there yet. And I had to fight with UCSF. They kept taking the part about the gut out and I kept insisting to put it back in and that went back and forth. And finally, you know, I got the, they left a paragraph about the gut in and now everybody's talking about the gut. So autism, my conclusion was it was the final common pathway of everything that went wrong. And it is increasing like from one out of 10,000 years ago to some people say like one male out of 136. Korea's had higher uh, prevalence rates. They had something called digital dementia. And to me, this is symptomatic of everything that can go wrong. There are some mothers that had antibodies to the kid's brain, which is pretty bad, but every kid was different with different contributing factors. And so some of the kids you could help and some of them, I don't know, there's one woman that was on the show, Catherine Reed, and she was a biochemist and she reversed her child's symptoms by taking glutamate out of the diet. When I was having arguments with people on next door about autism, somebody piped up, well, I help reverse my kid's symptoms by taking, um, what do you go? You know, uh, anyway, uh, breads and wheats and you know gluten out of the diet. So it's a multifactorial disease. But in your opinion, why is the incidence skyrocketed? Yeah, it's a really good question. Actually, autism, uh, ironically, is not complicated. It's actually a very simple disease. Um, the consequences that are downstream complicated. So autism itself, yeah, you're absolutely 100 right. Like back in the 30s and 40s, the rate was one in 300,000. It was a very rare disease. You would almost never see the case. And it originally was a neurodevelopmental disorder. Children were born with autism, okay, usually an autosomal recessive genotype type, something normally affecting mitochondrial function or certain, you know, there's a, there's a number of genetic diseases that have autistic features. And then the rates keep on climbing, and you're right. It's 5% of children, 5% of boys in Scotland are diagnosed with autism. That's 1 in 20. Okay, that's it's unbelievable. And so it's crazy. So okay, fundamentally, autism, all causes of autism are caused by impaired myelination of the brain. Okay? So the brain, the early childhood development when we're born, our, we're born with our wires laid down bare between the different sections of our brain. And starting about 8 to 10 weeks prior to birth, you start myelinating, which is putting the 
protective electrical coating, like the, like, the, like the plastic coating around your copper wires in your wall, for example. So when we're born, we're born with just bare wires. Or in just about eight to ten weeks prior to birth, the brain starts protecting those wires with myelin. It's called myelination. And it's this myelination process becomes very dramatic over the first three years of life or so. And this is an incredibly demanding process of human brain development. And what happens in autistic children, and there's many, many pathways to it, but this myelination process gets impaired, delayed. It gets less than fully functioning. And there's a huge list of advanced MRI studies, magnetic resonance imaging studies, to prove this point. And so that's ultimately all symptoms from autism arise from this impaired myelination of the brain. And what myelination of the brain is important for is it allows you to tune in and tune out of signals. The best way to think about what your myelination does is if you're in a, say you're in a crowded room of people and you're listening to different conversations and you can kind of move to one conversation, tune into one person, then move to another conversation, tune into that person and tune out everyone else around that person and so on and so forth. And then if all of a sudden one person starts screaming in the room, right, you can actually identify that one person and you can see, okay, that person is screaming, but no one else around them is screaming. Myelination is what allows us to isolate and separate stimuli um, that comes into us, okay, all types of stimuli. And when your myelination is poor, all of a sudden you can't differentiate people. And you can differentiate them when the noise is low. As long as it's a low noise, you can still separate the people from each other. But if someone starts yelling, all of a sudden it doesn't sound like one person yelling. It sounds like all ten people around that person is yelling because they can't differentiate it. And so, and then you can't learn. When your myelination is impaired, you can't learn because you can't reinforce A equals B. You know what I mean? Like, so, oh, here's a cat. Uh, okay, now I've rec- I'm associating the word cat with this animal that looks like a cat. And now I understand what that is. And that's a very simple format, but as we get more and more complicated, the, the more complicated our cognition comes, the more important our myelination is. And that's why myelination continues up into our 50s. So what happens, so now the question is, is and so this is unambiguous. Okay, There's nobody on the planet who will argue that autistic children have normal myelination in the brain. There's probably 20 MRI clinical trial data points to prove that this white matter myelination is impaired. So the question now becomes is why? Why are we seeing this impaired myelination elevated in children? And it comes from inflammation. So you're right with the gut, okay? So now the question is, is what are the different ways in which this happens? And fundamentally, all mitochondrial, all autistic children um, are derived from a mitochondrial insufficiency from multiple reasons. It could be poor diet. It could be increased inflammatory environment, like high omega-6. Bad, you know, you can be a, a infections of the gut. They can have a bad reaction to, you know, have a bad flu, so on and so forth. Fall off their skateboard, hit their head, get a little bit of brain swelling and so on and so forth. So there's a hundred different reasons that can create a trigger. So typically, all diseases have two components. It has, they have, it has a susceptibility component and a trigger component. And so if, the more susceptible you become to a disease, the weaker the 
trigger needs to be to cause it. And the more resistant you are, the bigger trigger that needs to happen to cause outcomes. And so what's happened over time in autistic children is that this, for numerous reasons, like um, lack of breastfeeding, infant formula, the resistance of the child, and could be, because most autistic children will have gut issues, most autistic children will have insulin sensitivity issues. There's a bunch of things. Their, their oxidative stress markers are elevated, you know, the homocysteine, the, you know, the, the single carb metabolism. There's a, there's a bunch of work done on that, and very consistently, like all the time. And so then, so that's what's happening. So we had our total environment, the environmental pressure on children has increased. And this is, and so if you, if you put the pressure higher, then you're going to have this um, higher preponderance. And then when you take a look at the gender bias in autism, so three times more boys get autism than girls, and the gender bias is fundamentally explained by levels of beta estradiol in pre-puberty because girls, are little, you know, baby girls are far more resilient than baby boys. So boys are always a weaker um, sex growing up until puberty, basically. And then, but pre-puberty, girls have beta estradiol in their blood. And beta estradiol is a very protectant, neuroprotectant, and it protects brain neurons, and it protects them from autism. It's also why when girls get autism, it's much more severe. The, the mortality rate in autistic girls is twice that of autistic boys. And so the severity of the disease is always worse in girls. So in order for a girl to get autism, it's typically a much greater insult because it's overcome some of their natural protection mechanisms. And that's why you have this boy versus girl ratio. So in terms of the understanding what autism is and the different, and the reason why it's hard to chase down a cause, because there isn't just one cause. There's a many different ways. And this is why inflammation. So the, the one neighbor that said removing glutamate, well, that's actually a good idea because glutamate is what is a neurotoxin. It's from the activated cells in the brain called microglia. But whether or not that helps everybody, it depends upon the individual child. So the point of the story is fixing autism and curing autism is equally not that complicated, and that's what we're working on. So two, it really only takes two things to cure autism. Then you have to deal with the recovery phase. So but curing the actual biochemistry of autism only requires two components. One is restoring mitochondrial function, and, record, and that's a number of part of it we said is improve their environment, right, to reduce the mitochondrial stressors in their life, and other ones are supplements that improve mitochondrial function. And the, big, and the second part is restoring myelination. And that's the harder part. And that's the part that I've really contributed over time in terms of not just Alzheimer's, but in autism is the critical molecule that your body uses to make this myelin is a molecule called plasmalogens. And interestingly enough, this molecule is in high concentrations in human breast milk and especially in twice as concentrated in human colostrum. So the human body, the mother, our, our early childhood development, breast milk itself in humans is designed to help supplement 
this myelination process. And there's very, very little plasmalogens in cow's milk. There's no plasmalogens in any kind of infant formulas. And this is why when we compare formula-fed versus breastfed babies, it shows up on the MRI scans at their two- to three-year mark in that breastfed babies will have better brain myelination than formula-fed babies. They'll have higher cognition. They'll have lower rates of autism. Okay, and again, that's just one contributing factor, and you're right. There's many other ones. And you're going to have differences. Not all mothers are going to have good breast milk, and, not, and, then, and so not all babies are going to be really, really needing the breast milk. But when you combine a child who needs extra plasmalogens growing up for whatever reason with, say, a mother or bad infant formula, those two things in combination with each other puts that child at a greater and greater risk. So fixing the mitochondrial function and restoring myelination, that is biochemically and um, doable in the real world. Then the, mix, the, bigger, the bigger challenge is now recovering. This is the other problem we have in medicine is that we confuse curing a disease with recovering from a disease. And they're two different things because once you cure a disease or cure the underlying causation of the disease, so if you have diabetes, for example, right, and you increase your muscle mass and then you always, because and and, that's the biggest way to cure type 2 diabetes is increasing skeletal muscle mass. And it, it changes the ability to process your free fatty acids, and it frees up the capacity to process glucose. So that's why certain lifestyle, intermittent fasting, low glycemic index diet, but most importantly, some resistance training. So you can fix that. But that doesn't mean the person is fixed right away. Now they have to recover from however many years they were in a diabetic state. And so the other analogy is if, imagine you had a broken foot, and you've been running on a broken foot for 10 years. And all of a sudden, some guy comes around and says, you know what, I can fix your foot. And you come in and they fix your foot. Well, you just don't walk out of the doctor's office and run a marathon because you now need to learn how to run on a good foot again because your entire life has been based upon living on a bad foot. And same, so for autism is once you reduce the neurological inflammation, okay, they have to now, the children need have to adapt to living with a healthier brain. They have to realize the, the circumstances that cause them a great deal of stress. So social interaction, eye contact, those social circumstances create stress in an autistic child. They avoid the stress from it because it creates a negative reaction in them. And they create stereotypical behavior to protect themselves from it. So once that inflammation goes away and they, are, they experience those circumstances again, they had to learn that, oh, you know what, that, didn't, that wasn't as stressful as I thought it was. Every time I had this situation, I always got stressed by it, but now I'm not so stressed by it. And so then they say, oh, well, maybe I won't, be, I won't avert my eyes so quickly this next time. And slowly they start realizing that certain parts of the world is safe again for them, and they can readapt to, they have to learn to live in an environment that's not as, inflammatory or stressful to them. So that's the process of autism. Um, and this brain myelination process and restoring it and neurological inflammation is really the root of this. But there's many, many different causes that lead us to, and that's why it's, you know, chasing it down. Because, you know, in some cases, 
it can be linked maternally through mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, probably 5 to 10% of all autism cases are, are, or even up to 30% have an actual mitochondrial mutation associated with it. A certain percentage will be caused by toxins in the environment. Um, certain percentage will be caused by um, adverse conditions in their environment. And that's why trying to chase down a single environmental cause has escaped the community because there isn't just one. There's many different ways you can, you can get there. But it doesn't really matter in the end. Clearly, removing the negatives is important, but we need to reinforce the positives because not every child gets autism. That's the other part we forget. Like, despite all the negatives, there are still healthy children in the world. And so clearly there's something in the human population that enables many children to experience and tolerate and thrive despite certain stressors in the world. And we need to learn from that. And say, so, we, so it's not a guaranteed process. So the fact that we do have healthy children, even healthy children that grow up in negative environments, that means it is possible to overcome these things. So we just need to increase the resilience of the children and allow them to, you know, restore this myelination, reduce the neurological inflammation. And that's why we're seeing dramatic effects, like dramatic effects. Children that have been uh, unable to function in this world, um, waking up and interacting with their parents. And we have rare disease in children called rhizomelic chondrodysplasia punctata that has massive demyelination. And these children... With, with a death sentence, and now they're, they're walking around and they are playing with their siblings and they're, 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 they're interacting with their world. And so you can recover and you can, once you understand this whole concept of what health is, and don't focus on the disease, but focus on what does a healthy brain supposed to look like. A healthy brain is supposed to be fully myelinated. A healthy brain is not supposed to have inflammation in it. Okay, and, and what, is it, what are the things that we know that healthy brains do that prevent them from being inflamed? What do healthy brains do to maintain myelination? And we just need to reinforce and recreate that in all children, of course, but certainly children in need. How do you... Uh, recreate uh, functioning mitochondria, myelination, and decreasing the inflammation in the autistic brain? So the key hammers, okay, are improving. The big ones are N-acetylcysteine to make sure we maintain glutathione levels because autistic children, when you have inflammation, you turn over and you, you actually burn through certain vitamins faster than normal. So we need to make sure we provide extra for that. So N-acetylcysteine, carnitine, acetyl-L-carnitine, and CoQ10. Those three simple little supplements alone really increases the mitochondrial capacity, okay, and reduces the, the – those are the really big powerful. The curcuminoids, uh, I'm normally always using human endogenous metabolites, but curcuminoids are actually very powerful anti-inflammatories, which are also helpful. So mitochondria function is that. And then you can look at the front end of the mitochondria, which we forget sometimes, like good old-fashioned riboflavin and, you know, niacin, nicotinic acid, your thiamine, B1, B2, and B3. They're B1, 2, and 3 for a reason. They're important. 
And the other thing that autistic children often get deficient in is their methyltransferase system. And people have heard about this with their um, methyl B12, methylfolate. But a big one that most people miss is a simple little, metal, simple little supplement called creatine. We get it for muscle builders, okay? But that's not... When, when you're trying to restore brain function, this is also in, say, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's people. Creatine is a very powerful, very inexpensive supplement that really helps bring down your homocysteine levels because... Homocysteine, people may follow, you know, high levels of homocysteine are bad, indicate stress, but really what high homocysteine levels mean is that your system has a excessive methyltransferase activity. It's just turning through methyl groups, okay, which is a bad thing. But your body makes the, the two main drivers of homocysteine levels are making phosphocholine for your membranes and making creatine for your muscles. And so when you take creatine, what you do is you, really, you reduce the methyltransferase load and it helps lower homocysteine quite dramatically. Very inexpensive, very simple to do. So that's, those things really improve the whole mitochondrial side. And then to reinforce and to rebuild back the, the myelin, you need to bring in the lipids, okay, and the plasmalogen precursors and phosphocholine are the two main ones that become deficient. And that's easy. And um, so we have the plasmalgian precursors for them. What I try to tell people when, they, when they're trying to understand an inflamed brain, and we see this with, you know, with people with long COVID nowadays where they, where they just get knocked down and they just can't get up again, um, or any other kind of situation where you, where you get hit with a bad disease and you just you kind of get better but you're not really better and you're just dragging yourself and you just can't see, how, why can't I pick myself up again? I just can't seem to get above water anymore. And, and the best way to think about this are these plasmalogens are like, um, I tell people, imagine you're living in your town, wherever you are, and you have a big water reservoir next to the town. And this big water reservoir is being fed by the mountains, you know, a little bit of mountain stream, fine. But you get a big fire in the town, right? And that fire is inflammation. And the fire trucks come and they, they dump the hose into the lake and they start dousing the fire with the water from the lake. Well, and that's fine. Like, if, say, if you only lose half, use half the water up to get the fire out, you're good to go because then you can wait for another year or however long it takes for that little stream to fill that lake back up again. But if that inflammation goes on too long and you end up draining the entire lake, okay, you're, you're out and you're, you don't have any reservoir left. And so all you have left now is a small amount that's coming in from the feeder stream, and that's not enough to fight. And so all of a sudden you got yourself underwater, and no matter what you do, you're just barely keeping the fire at bay. You can't get the fire out. And plasmalogens are one of those, is, is like that lake. And they're, they're stored in all the biological membranes of your body. And you have lots of them, 20 to 30% of your brain. Half of the phospholipids in your heart are plasmalogens, which is why we're seeing a lot of this um, myocarditis issues around the world right now. And so this, when you get depleted in plasmalogens, it's a big deal. Um, it's, it's a 30-year differential lifespan. A person with high plasmalogens lives 30 years longer than a person with low plasmalogens. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not something to be play, played around with. And the problem was how to get these things into humans because we make, it's such a critical molecule for humans that we make all our own plasmalogens. And they're, they're used to neutralize acids in your body 
And so if you eat plasmalogens from an animal source, they get blown up in your stomach acids. Okay, so you can't, you, the bioavailability of, of plasmalogens from natural meats is very, very low. And so that's where my contribution to this field really is, is that I designed and developed plasmalogen precursors that survive the gut. And they're just, they're, they're actually 100% natural. They're found in the natural world. They're actually the exact same molecules that are in human breast milk, for example. Exactly the same molecule that's in human breast milk. And you see some of the, and so this stuff is designed to go through the gut and be absorbed and then distributed to all the cells of your body and so that you can basically artificially refill that lake, if you will, and, and, if, and allow you to fight that fire until it gets, until it's out. And that's why it's been pretty dramatic um, improvements in individuals. This is what I found so exciting about your book, Breaking Alzheimer's. You discuss, uh, probably mispronounce it, uh, <laughs> plasmalogens, and that you can assess that that's a risk of how far you are on this continuous pathway to dementia. You're able to measure this. You're able to come up with supplements to maybe reverse it and get you more toward optimal health. This is what's so exciting. So tell me about measuring uh, plasmalogens and how it uh, fits into the path of dementia. And then I have one other question after that is discussing your approach to bipolar disease. So uh, why don't let's discuss plasmalogens and the pathway to dementia. And you can measure this, which is exciting. Yeah, so, so, so I've been talking all about plasmalogens, and most people are still thinking, what the heck is plasmalogen? Like, I've never heard of these things before, which is, don't worry, you're not alone. Most people haven't heard about them, even though they have been studied extensively. Okay? They were first discovered in the 1920s. We know how critically important they are. If you ever want to know how important plasmalogens are, all you have to do is look up a rare disease called RCDP, rhizomelic chondrodysplasia punctata. That's what happens when the human body does not get enough plasmalogens. These children have a genetic deficiency that prevents them from making them. And this supplement that I've designed restores it in these children, and these children are are surviving now. But plasmalogens are a membrane phospholipid. And so your body is built up of thousands and thousands of cells, trillions of cells. And you can think of your body like a big, massive apartment complex, right? You have outside walls, and then you have walls separating the different apartments from each other, and then inside each apartment you have walls that separate your kitchen from your bathroom. And that's how, you, and that's how an apartment building compartmentalizes all the functions. So someone can sleep in one room while someone else is watching TV in another room. So your body's organized in very much the same way. But the walls, of course, are not made by wood and plaster like an apartment building or concrete. They're made with biological materials. And the biological material that your body uses to make all these membranes in your body is called phospholipids. And they're like a soap, like what we use for soap in um, detergent. They have a polar, one, one side likes to be in water and one side likes to be in oil, and they, they form together to create this biological wall. And so plasmalogens are a critical component of, of all the membranes of your body, and that's where they're mostly stored. And they provide function, makes your membranes fluid, because things need to go in and out, in and out the doors and the windows, and we need to be able to communicate from one cell to another, and... And all that process requires the right material. And plasmalogens are a critical building material for all the membranes of your body, especially your brain and your myelin, like I mentioned before, and your heart and your lungs. So that's what plasmalogens are. 
And so one of my first inventions was uh, advanced mass spectrometry technology that we used to measure biomarkers in blood um, called non-targeted metabolomics. It allowed me to measure thousands and thousands, and I still use it in our research facility here in Temecula, California, um, measure thousands and thousands of molecules. And so when I use this technology to, under, to study dementia and understand what's different in people with cognitive impairment versus people that are cognitively normal, what was revealed using this technology with a class of molecules called plasmalogens were depleted. And I had no idea what these were at the time. No one had ever shown that they were decreased in your blood. There had been previous studies showing the brain degeneration and plasmalogens in the brain have been known, but this concept that humans become depleted in their blood and this depletion in the blood links, creates their risk for Alzheimer's disease um, and actually correlates with their level of cognitive functioning had never been discovered before. And that was the big holy crap moment, and saying, okay, so what, what are these things? And the next question is, okay, are these just after the effect things? Are these, are these, these things get decreased because, oh, yeah, right, you're sick, so since you're sick, your, body, your disease is actually causing these plasmalogens to go down. And then that's where you take a look at longitudinal studies and temporal research studies, and it was very clear that this was not happening. It was very clear that the plasmalogens were going down first, and then you got dementia second. So the, the low plasmalogens were actually causing people to get dementia. And so from that, the obvious question was, well, how do we restore these things? Is there a food supply for these things? Why can't we just eat plasmalogens and, and be done with it? And that's when we discovered that, well, the reason why we're becoming depleted is because you're entirely dependent on your endogenous metabolism like you, because they're, they're digested in the stomach and they're not absorbed. And so in order to get them in, I had to design molecules that were, that were absorbable and that weren't, that weren't broken down by the stomach acid. Like your stomach is very acidic. It's concentrated hydrochloric acid in our, in our stomachs. And so and it's very important because that's how we break down bacteria and a bunch of other things. So there's, our gut function is really, really important for our health. We don't take it seriously enough. Luckily, as you said, Dr. Susan, it's becoming more and more prevalent now. People are taking it seriously, which is good. Um, but anyway, so that's how plasmalogens were discovered and how their relationship to dementia was discovered. And then once that was discovered, other diseases, understanding other diseases that were associated with plasmalogen deficiencies, because they go down with age. As you get older, they kind of peak. Our plasmalogen levels in our blood on average, you know, peak in our, say, 50s, and then they start decreasing after that. For, and it's not one reason. It's probably 100 different reasons. Same reason different children get autism. There'll be, same, there'll be the same 100 different reasons why, as we get older, um, different people will lose their plasmalogen capacity at different rates. And the faster and the lower your plasmalogen level is, what happens is, is that your, your reservoirs bleed out faster. And so the, so the plasmalogen in your blood is like the, the stream feeding the reservoir lake that I talked to you about earlier. So if that's a big torrent, like if, you're, if there's lots of water coming out of the mountains into that lake, then you can, no big deal. Like you just fight the fires as you need it and your lake never goes dry. But if that, if that feeder system decreases, all of a sudden, the more you use a lake, it starts to get lower. And, it and, and so you take off 50% of the lake and then 
it builds up to maybe 75%, but it only builds up to 75% before you use it again. And so over time, it just kind of gradually, you lose your reservoir, you lose your reserve capacity. And that's why the low plasmalogens were so critical for longevity, because it's not just your brain, your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, these all have very, very high levels of plasmalogens in them. And so that's another situation where we were studying dementia in, the, in population, a very large population, uh, uh, measured about 10,000 blood samples from Chicago, um, longitudinal, like 1,600 people over many, many years. And so the data is extremely robust. And we've done this in Japan and multiple studies. So that it's, it's not in question. And, and multiple independent research facilities have now confirmed those findings, which is, which is good to know. Have the studies, so, but, of your, yeah. you're, you're talking as if plasmalogen deficiency leads is causal in going toward dementia. Are there studies showing that it's causal versus just correlation? Yeah, so, so animal models that have plasmalogen deficiencies, the yeah. synaptic function, synaptic release of neurotransmitters are absolutely. And then I've done the post-mortem work in brains, done extensive analysis of the correlation between the plasmalogens in your brain and your cognitive function in pre-death and linking that with other mechanistic studies. So for dementia, so the mechanism of dementia, okay, and dementia is not Alzheimer's, okay, there's different, Alzheimer's is a pathological state. Alzheimer's is a library designation of whether or not you have amyloid plaques or neurofibrillary tangles. So there's certain pathologies that are they were discovered by Dr. Dr. Alzheimer's, and they're valid. Like you shouldn't have them in your brain. So don't get me wrong, but they're not actually those those molecules are not actually toxic, and they're not actually causing brain degradation. That's actually not true, um, and I've shown that definitively. The and others have as well. It's just not widely reported. What causes cognitive impairment is the reduction of a specific neuron system called the acetylcholine system, okay? And I know it's, this is a bit gobbledygookish, but your, your brain has different neurotransmitters. But this system is the acetylcholine system. It just so happens that this is the same transmitter system that runs all your muscles, so your neuromuscular junction. So those are all controlled by acetylcholine neurons as well. But what happens is for when, when we have electrical connections in the body, Okay, again, just like the membranes, we have to use biological material. We're not made of copper and wood and plaster. So when you turn on a light switch in your house, right, you have a light switch, you have a wire that goes through the wall to the light bulb, and so you're going to have a, a wire that, that connects it, and then at the end you're going to have a switching plate which says on-off, right? And how do you turn the electricity from the wire into the light bulb? That's basically how neurons work as well, right? But... Of course, we aren't made of copper and metal, so how does the brain do that? And the brain does that by, by a, a biological system called the synapse, which is the, dip, which is the gap between two neurons. I hate and, to interject here, but yeah. we are running short of time. Sure. I would like to point out to the audience that he has devised a mechanism to measure plasmologens, which I think is important, yeah. and he's designed ways to increase it, and as he's 
uh, as he has cited in his book, several studies to show that plasmalogens can be causal to dementia and other diseases. I think this is important. Can you briefly touch bipolar disease? We've got four minutes left, and then I would like to have you uh, state how people can get a hold of you, because I think this test for plasmalogens and uh, supplementing them is very important. But a a brief minute on bipolar and then uh, um, concluding. Okay, you got it. Thank you, Susan. So, yeah, so, and by the way, on the plasmalogens, we've done clinical trials, and it's published in peer-reviewed journals where we've improved plasmalogen levels in individuals, and their cognition improves statistically. So that's, that's also publicly available in the literature. Um, but, yeah, bipolar is an interesting, probably don't have four minutes to do with it, but bipolar is a very specific disease. Um, biomarkers of it are available through our advanced technology, and, again, it's a, it's a myelination disease, like autism, but different, okay, and it has a different causation. It's an overactive system. And here's another disease that we've been doing a lot of work with, with a very special type of plasmalogen called an omega-9, which is the, the one for myelination. And so bipolar disease can be differentiated from schizophrenia, from depression. And this is a big situation because... Neurological inflammation is another critical component in bipolar. So a lot of these neurological diseases, schizophrenia, bipolar, autism, these all have a very common component of this impaired myelination process, but for different reasons. So bipolar has a, people with bipolar, it has a strong familial association, as people would know, follows the mother's line. and it is um, caused by an active, overactive cell type and active turnover. This is why bipolar people are, are hypersensitive, hypercognitive as well. And people that have mild bipolar are actually more educated than non-bipolars, even if they only get, but sometimes they get diagnosed in their 40s, 30s, and 40s. So we have different phases in which people get diagnosed. And again, it comes to this risk profile where people can have you know, a little bit of a good thing can be really, really good, and then too much can, you know, um, trigger situations that you can't get yourself out of. And that's I think where the chairs of most psychiatry departments are diagnosed with bipolar too. Infinite uh, energy, but they can control it in social situations. So can you tell us some final concluding thoughts and how people get a hold of you? I found this absolutely fascinating. So you, lots of educational material at drgoodnow.com, and that's where we have a large network of certified doctors, and I do a lot of training on advanced, like advanced interpretation of blood work. We have a lot of good blood technology out there, but people interpret them from a disease diagnostic perspective versus health optimization. And so, so there's a lot of good technology out there. It just needs to be interpreted better in the context of optimizing your health. And there's, I have a network of skilled doctors that are, that are doing that. And then we, we add a bunch of advanced testing that can be done on top of that, plasmalogens, single myelin, ceramides, a bunch of other things that we measure that are important. So drgoodnow.com, lots of education, access to doctors, and so on. And this that's kind of the best place to get absolutely fascinating. So I hope that the audience will share this information, share it with your colleagues, get this word out, share it with your doctor, and, uh, you know, I mean, this is so fascinating. And above all, be well. We got the power.
Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.